Last week I began a sermon series called Prophets in Profile, which I'm probably overly excited about. And uh, you're going to hear a little bit more about why this series has me excited as a preacher in my letter for February. We started with Miriam, and Miriam is a character from the Exodus. She and her brothers, Moses and Aaron, were the leadership as the community left Egypt and the oppression there and made their way to the Promised Land. And today, we're a few hundred years later, we're picking up with Elijah as the community attempts to figure out how do we do this together in the Promised Land because there are already people here. Right? The Promised Land wasn't empty. Uh, the people there were known as Canaanites. And there's some work to do in determining how the, the folks coming from Egypt are going to engage and interact with the Canaanites, and Elijah the prophet helps to offer some guidance. So let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe and believing obey. Amen. So the other day, as the year turned over, as the decade turned over, I saw this internet meme, you know, somebody had posted on the internet, this, this right here. It, it said, 2050 is as far away as 1990. This was meant to be terrifying, and it was. 1990 was like yesterday. I don't know what you were doing. I was in middle school. I was trying to make the middle school basketball team and failing. I was avoiding homework with my Guns N' Roses t-shirt on, playing Super Mario Brothers 2 on the original Nintendo Entertainment System. That was 1990, and it was yesterday. 2050? Isn't that when Arnold Schwarzenegger is supposed to come back as a robot? <laughs> My oldest kids are around the age that I was then. And they are so much more put together <laughs> than I was then. They have to be because it's a, it feels like a very different environment for them than it was for me. They can't get away with what I got away with in being a slacker. You know, there's this competitive environment, you know, and there's a lot of desperation amongst people their age, just trying to get through. And they have, they have so much to kind of hold together. They even have their own language that they that, that they have to keep track of. When, when I was a kid, as a Gen Xer, Generation X, any Gen Xers here with me today? All right, we had a, we had a few words that we used, like dude, <laughs> sweet, bodacious. I don't know if anybody said that actually, but like we claimed that as a word. But my kids, they have an entire language that they have to manage and, uh, I don't know how they do it. In fact, over Christmas, we sat together and laughed about the, the words that they use. Like, did you know that the word extra 
means something different than what most of us think it means. It means you're using it to criticize someone that shows, ex- uh, that, that shows over-the-top dramatic behavior. Like, oh, he's so extra. Okay? There's also a word called yeet. There's a new word called yeet. My kids use it all the time. I don't exactly know what it means, but they say that it's used to show excitement or it is the verb to throw. And when you say you're dead, it doesn't necessarily mean a physical thing. It just means that you're euphorically happy. So Grace might say, Lily said the most extra thing yesterday about (laughs) yeeting over a fence and I was literally dead. Which makes you giggle, right? And now I like to use the word yeet just to aggravate them. It's the greatest. But there's another phrase being used by that generation that I'm less amused by, and that is okay boomer. Have you heard this? Okay, boomer. boomer. The phrase being used by young people to respond to criticism, and they would say to me, it's just a joke. But it's okay, boomer, as a response to criticism or advice or disagreement that they don't like from someone older. Okay, boomer can be used by younger generations to brush off the older generations as being out of touch. A way of being dismissive. And I think if you ask millennials and Gen Zers why they're using this kind of language, they say, well, we're kind of tired of the condescension that we hear from older generations about the things that we care about and believe in. And to that, they have a point. Because before OK Boomer, there was Generation Snowflake. Do you know what I mean? The notion of the snowflake, or a generation being called Snowflakes, comes from a 1990 book that actually became a movie called Fight Club. In that book, there's this quote, you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You are the same decaying organic matter as everyone, and we are all part of the same compost pile. How uplifting. (laughs) (laughs) But for the last couple of years, this word, snowflake, has been used to mock and deride mostly younger people for standing up for what they believe in and naming what they need. Now, in both cases, OK Boomer and You're a Snowflake are at best rude ways of talking to and about one another. Rude, mean, and actually pointless. But at worst, That kind of discourse is destructive to our ability to work with one another between the generations, to like one another, to love one another. We have to take care of one another across the generations. 
And we have a long way to go. And that kind of language isn't helping us to get there. I can say this as a Gen Xer. That little forgotten, bitter, whiny, but terribly insightful generation. (laughs) Stuck right in the middle of all of it. But Elijah the prophet was talking about this too. Before we get what Elijah has to say about the generations and how we interact with one another, a little bit about the prophet. Elijah was a Tishbite from Gilead, which means he was a foreigner that came to Israel as a mouthpiece for God. And he does this, as I mentioned before, after the exodus, as the community is trying to figure out what it means to live together in the promised land alongside these Canaanites. And he's doing this about the 9th century BC. And at this time, it's important to know that the community is actually living in two parts, two kingdoms, often called Israel and Judah, but if you want, you can just say the north and the south. And Elijah is in the north, which only exists for about 200 years, and only 100 years after Elijah's ministry. It was then that the Assyrian Empire sweeps in and cleans Israel, the northern kingdom, out. And Elijah could see this coming. And a big reason he could see this coming was because of the community's flirtation with the Canaanite god Baal. One thing you should know about Baal is that unlike the Israelite god Yahweh, Baal, the Canaanite god, needed to eat. And so when the worshipers of Yahweh would come together with their sacrifices, They would share their food and their goods with one another. But when people came to worship Baal, Baal needed to eat. So the priests and the people in power would take the goods and the sacrifices to give to Baal so that he could eat. And then they would threaten, if you don't bring more, Baal's going to be upset and you're going to incur his wrath. And so you can see the worship of Baal is more than just about false god idolatry. It is about the rich getting richer and the corrupt taking care of uh, taking advantage of the needy, right? Does that help understand a little bit about what's going on in Elijah's religious context? I hope so. Now, one of Elijah's most famous scenes comes in this duel he has with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where he challenges them, and it's a great story, and you should read it, but I'll just say, he wins this challenge, and the prophets of Baal are not happy, and the most unhappy follower of Baal as a result of this duel is Queen Jezebel. Queen Jezebel is married to King Ahab. And so you can see how the the Canaanite and the uh, Israel communities had become interwoven, maybe not for the best reasons. And she quite officially wore the pants in the relationship. 
And so she had this pesky prophet, Elijah, chased south to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb's important because that's where Moses encountered the burning bush, where Moses was handed the Ten Commandments. Elijah ends up at Mount Horeb, understanding because like with Moses, he's a prophet, he's going to have this encounter with God, and he does, but how does he have that encounter? Not in the quake, not in the fire, not in the wind, but how? By a still small voice. So, while Jezebel and Elijah are arm wrestling about Baal, King Ahab is attempting to attend to matters at home. And when he does, he sets eyes on this vineyard next door. And it kind of reminds me of the story of David and Bathsheba, where David looks on the porch and sees Bathsheba bathing. I imagine King Ahab just looking over and thinking, I'd like to have that vineyard. I'd like to plant a vegetable garden there. And so he approaches the owner of the vineyard, a man named Naboth, and he offers a fair price. But Naboth refuses. He cannot sell. It is his ancestral inheritance, a very important concept, especially in the Old Testament. These vines, these branches, they connect him to the generations before. They will connect him to the generations to come. That's what his vineyard is there for, to connect and to connect. No amount of silver or no vegetable garden that comes and goes in a year is ever going to be able to do that. And so Ahab, after Naboth refuses, goes home and he literally mopes. His concern is not for the generations before. His concern is not for the generations that will come. His concern is for what he has right now, and he wants Naboth's vineyard. And so he refuses to eat. He lays in bed with his face to the wall. Are you not the king of Israel? Jezebel sizzles at him. And then she takes matters into her own hands, ending the life of Naboth and commanding Ahab to get up and take what is his. Now by this time, Elijah is back and the word of the Lord is boiling in him. And as soon as Ahab sees him, it's like when your dad comes home from work after you've done something, he knows he's in trouble. Have you found me, O oh my enemy? Oh, I found you, Elijah says to him. And because you have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord, I will bring disaster on you. And here's something. And the generations to follow you. Naboth knew that the vineyard connected him to the generations before. It was important to him for that reason. Ahab was disinterested in what connected him to the generations before. He was disinterested in the theological tradition of the Israelite people. He was the kind of person that would say, okay, boomer. 
Are we disinterested in what the generations before us were doing? What they warned us about, what they fought for, what they stood up for? Have we become disinterested to the point where we've forgotten how we got here? On the other side, Naboth hoped that a vineyard, this vineyard that was so central to his life, would connect him to the generations that came after him. Ahab, at the end of the text, learns that it would be troubles that would connect him to the generation that came after him. He was the kind of person that would say, cry on, snowflakes, for them being upset about the trouble that he himself has handed on. What will connect us to the generations that come after us? Is it a vineyard or is it trouble? In a recent article on Medium, a 52-year-old Navy SEAL named James Hatch writes about his experience of going back to college in middle age after he served in the military. And he, and he shares about his first class. He says, they all smiled. This was at Yale. Some of them nervously because I was essentially an alien. I was an old dude, the Gen Xer with tattoos all over his arms and a Dutch shepherd service dog brandishing a subdued American flag patch on her harness sitting next to me. But then he goes to tell on, uh, go on to tell about how difficult and yet enriching it was to learn alongside people who had very different backgrounds, experiences, and points of view from him. He writes about how he meets young people that surprise him and become his friends, even in disagreement. In my opinion, he says, the real snowflakes are the people who are afraid of that situation. The poor souls who never take the opportunity to discuss ideas in a group of people who will very likely respectfully disagree with them. To me, there's no dishonor in being wrong and learning. There is dishonor in willful ignorance and disrespect. There is dishonor in willful ignorance and there is dishonor in disrespect. We have to matter to each other. We have to. We have to learn from each other and respect each other. Generations before us did that. What are we handing on? We have to be less of a vegetable garden right now, people, like Ahab. We have to be more of a, of a vineyard people to take on the theological mindset of Nebot, one that appreciates the inheritance of the generation that came before, and one that cares a great deal about what we're going to hand on to the generation that follows. It's a mindset that ultimately says that because of the vineyard itself, we are connected. The vineyard is our inheritance. And what is that? What is our inheritance? Maybe we should be asking who? 
is the vineyard. He is our inheritance. The one that came before and the one that comes after and the one that sat at a table with his friends and said, I am the vine and you are the branches and apart from me you can do nothing. And then do you know what he said? Right after he said that, you know what Jesus said? He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. Right after, he told us about our inheritance. And he said those words in Aramaic, the common language of his day. But they translate pretty well to today, don't you think? They make a lot of sense. It might be that the silent generation and the boomer generation and the Xers and the millennials and the Gen Zers have a difficult time understanding one another and the different languages we have. But here's what I think. If we can come together and try to understand his language and appreciate the inheritance we have in the vineyard, then it will go a long way toward us understanding and appreciating and loving one another. And that would be, that would be, as my generation would say, totally tubular. (laughs) Amen.